Joe Biden made some big promises when he assumed the presidency of the US in January, and for many, he's delivered. Most notably on the pandemic front, where he promised to provide 100 million vaccine jabs by his 100th day in office, today, if you're counting. Then he achieved it by day 58. We look back on the Democrats' first 100 days in office. A great success? Or is it the case that anything that came after Donald Trump would look rather good in comparison? Here in the UK, the vaccine supply is set to ramp up with invitations extending to the over 30s within the next fortnight, we hear. So, is the speed of vaccination proving a soft power win? Or are hard questions about Westminster sleaze and the slashing of foreign aid spending undermining the UK's image abroad? Last up, we hear from our generally flabbergasted New York correspondent, Henry Reese Sheridan. This week, he's more confused than usual, this time about rules governing a need to eat with food and an alcoholic beverage. We'll get to the bottom of it, don't worry, Henry. Monocle's panel of distinguished guests discuss these topics right here on this evening's Late Edition. Hello and a very warm welcome to the Late Edition on Monocle 24. May is motioning us forward, but for now it's Friday the 30th of April, and I'm Josh Fennett. Joining me today at Midori House in Studio One, if you must know, are Monocle's Editor-in-Chief, Andrew Tuck, and its Head of Radio, Tom Edwards. Tom, we'll start with you today, as it's been a week of ups and downs, mainly you getting up and down the stairs, running in and out of the bathroom after your vaccine this week. Can you confirm a rumour? Have you taken a day in lieu? Josh, I am not 100% convinced that the global listening public wants to know the granular detail of my post-vaccine struggles, as challenging as they were for me. I've got a text from uh, Brenda in London, and uh, she's asked if you came over a little queer. It's an odd <laughs> phrasing, but... Uh... Listen, uh, it's very important that we're moving this wonderful process on of building the the collective public health, and I'm happy to play my small part whatever the cost within limits hopefully i don't know apparently it's worse on the second vaccine but, but how so. great is that is it, it you know you're just into your 40s let's say yeah. and but um but how amazing in the uk that now to, um from today every single person who's 40 and plus has been invited to have their vaccine and you see what it does to the number so it's uh oddly it's um I don't know, it's kind of exciting when you see people around you. I got mine some time ago, unfortunately. Not that long ago. But um, uh, it's, it's exciting seeing people get it. It, kind of, it, it feels like a collective moment when people get their, their vaccination. Well, yeah, and also, and there was something, I, so I elected to go to the Francis Crick Institute, just by King's Cross, if people know that amazing sort of biomed research centre, named after, of course, the legendary and celebrated um, scientist. Northampton-born, if you're interested. I, I believe so, a cobbler. But what was really great was there was this wonderful sense of, um, I don't know, social participation. You were welcomed in. Everyone had a smile on face. Everyone was really making an effort. And there was something quite weirdly sort of joyous about it. I don't know. It, it seems a curious thing to say. But like I said, I guess people in this country are so eager to cling on to something that we've all done well for once uh, that maybe we're being slightly uh, over optimistic, but it was a, it was a good moment despite a few wobbles post. Anyway, <laughs> save save some of this spun gold analysis for our, our Brit poll item later in the show, Andrew. By this time in the week, I'm usually more organised, and I've given our Saturday newsletter a cursory proofread. Uh, but alas, the day has escaped me, and I've got no idea what's in your column for Saturday. I'm like all the people waking up, the tens of thousands of people who wake up and uh, snuggle up with Andrew Tuck's opinion on a Saturday morning. What can they look forward to? Um, health food shop thieves, what they're stealing and why. Interesting. 
it's, it's a good yarn. Um, swimming pool etiquette as the numbers of people in the lane are allowed to increase. No horseplay. And uh, who you choose to swim with. And I've got a few top tips. And also haircuts, because um, it turns out people aren't having so much of the cut as you might imagine. People are, are keeping a bit shaggy. Interesting. This According is like, to my hairdresser, who's a, th- you know, a, a global authority on these things. This is the unlikely news headline that Tony Blair has become a style icon, isn't it? Keep, well, keeping, it long, keeping it long on top and at the back. Can I just say, we did a story on Blair hair some weeks ago. When he already looked like he was in the jam, but, you know, <laughs> uh, but now he's gone like, he's way beyond Paul Weller. He's more Jennifer Aniston, actually. But he's, he's, <laughs> he's got so much hair. But anyway, I, I haven't kept the, that, that kind of length, but I've gone kind of midway. Well, often it takes the uh, the UK broadsheets a couple of weeks to catch up with our style <laughs> advice, doesn't it? So that's, uh, you know, we'll, 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 we'll cut... break all the big stories. We'll cut the hacks some slack. Um, <laughs> first up uh, today, we're in Washington, sort of. Uh, few who saw Joe Biden fumbling his way through the presidential primaries and trailing badly by the Iowa caucuses would have imagined the position he'd be in today. A hundred days into office, and apart from the odd stumble, often literal, he's gone about steadying the ship of state Rather effectively, Biden's achievements to date include making the COVID-19 vaccine available to all over 16s in the US, bumping up promises on curbing emissions and signing a gargantuan $1.9 trillion stimulus plan. Cue the Wall Street bull run. This week, to top it all off, the Dems, as this show's producer feels comfortable enough to colloquially dub them, pitched a further $2.9 trillion in spending. But that's almost enough from me. Let's listen to someone who knows what they're talking about. Scott Lucas, he's the professor of American studies at the University of Birmingham. He delved into some of Joe Biden's achievements earlier on The Globalist today. Biden, and he has been the man front and center to introduce limited measures, but at least some measures for gun control, to introduce the first measures to deal with America's longstanding immigration issue to put America back into the Paris Accords on climate change, to put it back into the World Health Organization in the midst of a pandemic, to introduce and oversee the American Rescue Plan, that $1.9 trillion plan to deal with coronavirus and its economic effects, to oversee the administration of more than 200 million vaccines in the first 100 days in office, covering more than half of American adults. You can see where I'm going with this. When we say that Biden's quiet, what we mean is, is that we don't have to think about that president every damn minute of every damn day making some type of crazed comment at a rally or at a news conference. In other words, competence and responsibility aren't necessarily quiet, but thank goodness we've got competence and responsibility back. Regular Monocle 24 contributor Scott Lucas speaking to us earlier today um, with some great insights, I think. Um, Andrew, we have a story about Joe Biden in our Out This Week May issue of the magazine. Do you agree with Scott that uh, competence and responsibility, as he put it, um, are back on the table after some years of absence? Well, it's interesting. He chimes with something, actually, which um, Sasha Isenberg, who wrote our story, comes around to as well, which says you know, that it's intriguing how, in a way, it's been quite a revolutionary 100 uh, days so far. And you hadn't quite noticed it happening. You know, he managed to get all these you know, spending reviews through and all, all, all the stimulus. He managed to deliver on many promises that people thought might have been over promises and a bit vague at the beginning. 
but he came good on them. And actually, at the end of the hundred days, people kind of looked up and uh, looked at the the political landscape and it, even the the you know the, the health landscape of America and thought, actually, God, this has been pretty extraordinary what he's managed to achieve in that time. So yeah, I think it, it has been pretty amazing. You know, with every presidency and with uh, anybody who's 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 running a nation, there are certainly questions and there are certainly people who won't agree with everything he's done. But yes, there has been an air of competence. And the quietness is good, although again, Sasha Isenberg says what's interesting is that over time, people will want to question him or have him a little bit more available. He's been a bit press shy unless it's 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 very controlled. Um, so that would be another interesting thing to see how that plays over time. Tom, like him or loathe him, Donald Trump's legacy, I think, is quite important, if only as a contrast to what's going on. I've got a kind of couple of questions. You can you can pick which one you like, but. Part of me is intrigued to know whether arriving after Donald Trump would kind of make anyone look a bit competent and a bit responsible by contrast. Or do you think Joe Biden's calculatedly low-key interventions have been a conscious effort to to calm the mood and kind of, as was mentioned before, step out of the limelight, let the business of government be something that goes on in Washington and you hear about not every day on Twitter? Yeah, I think it's a very deliberate strategy to meet the just constant, you know, soapboxing of Donald Trump, which was literally almost 24 hours a day, wasn't it? The way he was tweeting and all the rest of it. Um, Biden knows that well, I don't think he has the appetite for that kind of constant uh, dialogue. And he knows that by saying little and and by doing and being demonstrative with his politics, um, he can probably get a, a lot more done. It, it, one thing that I find really interesting is this, is the sort of the 100 days, actually, which it's a fairly arbitrary uh, time. It doesn't really mean anything politically specifically. But in American politics, I think it's so significant because it is, it was this device that FDR used to talk about. And obviously, Biden has, I think, explicitly and implicitly made these comparisons between FDR and you think back to, like, you know, the fireside chats and as he tried to carry America along with him on this very difficult road that they were going to have to walk, this 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 rebuilding that he needed to do. Um, and Biden has... I think he's deliberately tried to strike that same tone. He's tried to be, which he finds easy, this sort of avuncular, reassuring presence. But he's brought in that, FDR-esque, that kind of fireside chat. You know, when he's made his statements, it's when it's been something he's needed to to communicate. And he's been very warm and very direct around it. And he's just happy to let people judge by his deeds. I think the other thing that's interesting, and we did talk about this way back, even during the, the, the presidential election, is he also has to balance being too demonstrative or too outspoken with the fact that, you know, what is the longer game for the Democrats? You know, it, it, will Biden stand again? We don't know. If it's going to be Kamala Harris, then he has to find a way to allow her to occupy a bit more of the the spotlight. And he needs to be seen as someone who could, you know, hand over power potentially. And that's not something that virtually any president recently we can think of having to do after any one term. So it is a... I wonder if that's also part of the reason why he's being slightly more low-key in some of his approach. Andrew, last one on this. I heard um, the BBC's um, editor in America, John Sopel, describe Biden as being pretty quiet, but was careful to say that you shouldn't dismiss it, that for being uninteresting. And actually, some of the moves he's made have been fairly radical, even kind of European by the standards of big government and, and big spending. Um, was, do you think this is a bit of a surprise to people? The, uh, I suppose the ambition of um, a man dubbed Sleepy Joe. Well, I, 
I don't know. On issues such as climate change, it was already flagged that he would you know, want to rejoin the Paris Accords. Uh, with Iran, we we understood that you know he was keen to see a, a nuclear deal brought back. Um, and so all those things, I, I think they were flagged a little bit. I think what's interesting is, and which which is obviously not playing out so well if, if you're a, a tech billionaire, for example, is his, his tone on taxation. And you know, it, it's very difficult when you're here in Europe, when you talk about taxation, you know, people just presume that you pay your tax and you pay quite high taxes. And that's part of being a, you know, a country and looking after everybody who, who lives in it. And especially in the social democracies of Sweden, you wouldn't, you, you know, you wouldn't be surprised if you're paying half your salary. But in, in America, tax is a, a much more incendiary issue. And that is also something that will be interesting to see how that plays out over the long term. And also, I think the the the, the other thing that you, you, when Tom was talking about what happens in the future, the other interesting thing is you have these hot topic issues such as migration in every country, but in the U.S., you know, Donald Trump, uh, he, his famous uh, wall with Mexico and his determination to stop migration from the South, the the, the Biden administration has been much quieter on that and we have seen these extraordinary numbers of people trying to cross the borders again so you have potentially the planting of some seeds that could be difficult four years down the line if, if there's a feeling that he was a tax and spend president if there's a feeling that he lost control of the borders of america we saw last time it's only a it's a 50 50 almost split the country you only you have a few percentage points jumping each way if that doesn't play out well in four years' time, then you're back to the, this this kind of nerve-wracking um, voting process and not knowing who's going to win. And, dear listeners, don't forget you can follow the stories across Monocle 24 or pick up a copy of our May issue and read our Washington correspondent, Sasha Eisenberg's excellent report, monocle.com, for all that. Uh, next up and closer to home for my panel, we're going to talk about the UK's soft power pull. That is, how well the nation is projecting a positive image of itself around the world, from its handling of the pandemic to its generosity on the global stage. So... For the attention of our soft power examiners today. The vaccine programme has been one such success and will ramp up over May, with over 30s set to be offered the jab in the next fortnight. Tick. On the international stage, the appointment of the UK's ambassador to France marks a milestone in which all key diplomatic positions are now held by women. Tick. In less favourable news, though, the Conservative government is mired in a sleaze scandal involving access to the Prime Minister by text, and many are questioning the UK's decision to cut its international aid funding. Less good for the brand abroad, many are saying. Andrew, we like to talk about soft power as a measure of success at Monocle because in an increasingly connected world, the power of your international brand should be as worthy as consideration as your kind of military hardware. We think, I think, and I think many other people think... Um, is it getting any easier to make the case for global Britain and its successes on the world stage, or are we languishing a bit? You're pulling a face. Well, I think it's just a bit more complicated than that because you know, the, you know yes, we've done an, the, you know, the vaccine program is extraordinary, and you know, depending whether you're on the left or the right, you'll say whose you know who, whose whose victory that is. If you're on the left, you say it's just we have a very successful national health service who who've been good at the delivery. But that that isn't really all of it. It's been all of it has been pretty amazing. So and the government definitely definitely deserve you know, credit for doing lots of things right, moving fast 
being agile, spending to make sure that there were doses for, for the UK public, all great. But I don't know how well that plays out as a soft power thing because you only have to read the right-wing press and they are kind of like mocking the Europeans for their inability to kind of uh, vaccinate people at the same rate as the UK. They're kind of sneering other countries for their kind of, you know, their tardiness. And I don't think we've done it in a way that is like, okay, here's here's a prime example of what you can do and we will share our, our knowledge on, on delivery systems, for example. I think it's been a bit of kind of like, you know, Yabu sucks, we're the winners. And, you know, I don't know that works as, as soft power. And then, you know, um, and Boris is this strange character, you know, that he's, you know, he plays well at home with his constituency. But I, I, I still think on, on the global stage, people think he's an idiot. And, and that, yeah, there's just something about him that doesn't work when, you, when he gets on a plane or goes abroad. Not that he is, but you know, when they see him in his papers, in the papers, you know, the, the odd right-wing you know, Italian speaking the, in the European Parliament might say, oh, you know, good old Britain, whatever. But it, it's very few. But, you know, but that isn't to say that Britain is with, without merit or without hope. But, you know, far from it. You know, we have an amazing country full of talented people who do incredible things and they will be the ambassadors for Britain going forward. But we are still in this weird period when you every day you read the paper, there's some stupid story about kind of like another tussle with the, the European Union over something which, you know, a bunch of grown-ups should be able to agree about by now. And Tom, I mentioned in the queue the quite controversial decision for the UK to cut its contributions to the global aid budget. Um, people in favour of that have said that even with the reduction in spending, uh, the UK will be paying more as a percentage of its GDP than Germany, than France, than the US. Do you think things like that are important? Because you don't often see the upshot of you know where the international aid budget goes. But is it another example of the kind of nativism that we've seen in recent years of pulling back from international cooperation and contributions? Yeah, I, I think it makes me a bit uneasy because I like the fact that Britain you know overpays or pays its way or, or more more than its more than its share, and I think that that is classic soft that is classic soft power that kind of largesse that admittedly the joe public doesn't see it but it's it is very measurable the impact that it has um, and what a gesture it would send about our wider engagement with the world and our wider internationalism if we had say retained that budget or reinstated part of the cuts um, just to show that you know britain is still engaged with all of the its global partners um, and that would kind of help to ameliorate this this situation which i think andrew describes accurately with the the 20 the 27 in the block which is just so awkward and is such a waste of energy and resource and it is worth pointing out as well if even even amongst the, the the more sort of rabid ends of the press if we didn't have the successful rollout and if we weren't constantly talking about the pandemic and what follows there would be more scrutiny of the ongoing what do you call it fallout of brexit the the, the mismanagement of it um, and that's not going anywhere. And we, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about the, you know, the border between the Republic and North Ireland or the ease of trading with the, with the bloc more broadly. That is still, there are plenty of chickens that are yet to come home to roost and they might be chlorinated ones. Fish too. Plenty of fish still to come home. <laughs> well, apparently British fish, according to Jacob Rees-Mogg, are much happier for being British fish, so who knew? Scientist Jacob Rees-Mogg there talking to someone for some reason. <laughs> Um, Finally on today's show, let's dart across the Atlantic to check in with our confounded correspondent in New York, Henry Rhys Sheridan. This week he makes a mountainous report out of an editorial molehill, including a stop-off at a place called Beaver Lake near Montreal. Um, Henry, do tell. 
In the summer of 2018, I went to Montreal with my fiancée. One day we went for a hike up Mount Royal, the large hill, or small mountain, depending on your perspective, that the city takes its name from. Halfway up the mountain we reached an artificial reservoir called Beaver Lake. On the shores of Beaver Lake is a pavilion, and inside that pavilion is a restaurant called The Pavilion. Parched after the moderate intensity hike, I entered the pavilion with the intention of ordering an ice-cold French-Canadian beer. I went up to the counter where a waiter waited to take orders. Une bière, s'il vous plaît, I said. The waiter responded that he'd be more than happy to serve me a beer, but only if I ordered some food as well. It was the law, he said apologetically, that alcoholic drinks could only be sold with food. I stepped back and began to peruse the wall-mounted menu. The waiter saw what I was doing and interrupted my perusal. The kitchen is closed, he said. In that case, monsieur, I replied, you have put me in an attraper vendeur. Catch 22 in French. Au contraire, the waiter parried. You should feel free to order from our snack menu. Might I suggest a fruit salad? He gestured towards a refrigerated display case. Inside, there was a row of plastic pint glasses, each filled with bits of grape and melon and mango, all visibly past their prime. My stomach and my mind contorted at the thought of chasing my pilsner with a punnet of expired fruit. Before you cast me as a prude, let me assure you my taste in beer snacks is Catholic. I'm perfectly happy with a packet of crisps and won't turn down a canapé if they're on offer. But I've also been known to go off-piste, especially where sweeties are concerned. If you've never tried a Jaffa cake with a Hefeweizen, in my opinion, you haven't lived. But a fruit salad with a beer? That's territory into which I have not and will not venture. But why? As I stood at the counter, I began to examine my prejudice. Certainly, the beer connoisseur within me didn't like the idea one bit. The thought of the sharp, tangy flavours of the fruit salad mixing in my mouth with the bitter notes of the beer made my tongue itchy. But there was a different type of connoisseur within me who was equally put off. The connoisseur of sound public policy. Presumably the law requiring food to be purchased with alcohol had a paternalistic rationale. By increasing the likelihood that people will be lining their stomachs before, during or shortly after they drink, the state hoped to reduce instances of pissed-up nutters making a public nuisance of themselves. But you don't have to be Heston Blumenthal to understand that a fruit salad's capacity for booze absorption is close to zero. In fact, the latest research shows that far from mitigating the intoxicating effects of alcohol, raw fruit is, upon mingling with tipple in the stomach of a reveller, more likely to trigger a chemical reaction that tips them over the edge of mere drunkenness into a violent fugue state, during which they cannot be held accountable for their actions. In short, the law requiring food to be served with a drink is rendered a nonsense when fruit salad is considered to meet its sustenance requirements. More, it is a public hazard. By the time I had finished explaining this line of reasoning to the waiter, the queue behind me had grown quite long. I got the sense both he and the other customers were eager for me to conclude the transaction. I deigned to purchase the ridiculous fruit salad. It sat on my table untouched, slowly curdling in the Quebecois sun while I glugged my hard-won pilsner. 
Given this traumatic experience, you can imagine my despair when it was announced in July of last year that bars in New York City, which had tentatively begun to serve customers outdoors, would be required to serve food with drinks. The regulation was apparently an attempt by New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's administration to reduce mingling, and by extension the spread of the coronavirus, by keeping patrons seated at tables. But the idea that drinkers would be sitting down for a white tablecloth meal with every can of Pabst Blue Ribbon was a fantasy. In reality, establishments with no history of food provision did the bare minimum to conform to the law. And most of the food that they did offer was highly portable and not going to keep anyone anchored anywhere. A bewildering range of ad hoc snack options sprung up. The bar on the corner of my block took to handing out hastily constructed peanut butter and jam sandwiches wrapped in cellophane with every drink order. Unlike the fruit salad, they were actually a very tasty complement to a lager. The beer connoisseur in me was quieted, but they did absolutely nothing to stop the spread of coronavirus. The public policy connoisseur was angrier than ever. Fortunately this week the insanity came to an end. The food requirement is to be rescinded. What's more, Andrew Cuomo also announced that a midnight curfew on restaurants and bars will be lifted in mid-May for outdoor dining and late May for indoor dining. Additionally, while conducting the rigorous research I demand of myself for each and every of my letters from New York, I learned that last December, even Quebec relaxed its laws around alcohol service. Next time I visit the pavilion, there'll be no need to sacrifice a fruit salad at the altar of sobriety. Our New York correspondent, Henry Rees Sheridan there. Um, I'm given to believe by the script I'm reading that Henry's report had something to do with food and drink. Um, Andrew, I'm not, not certain you were able to understand that report. But if we were to bring the situation back to home ground, I suppose we could talk about the UK's big experiment with being a bit European, with sitting outdoors, with uh, having outdoor heaters. Um, do you think the restrictions placed on restaurants um, are likely to change eating habits in the UK at all? Well, it just means you want soup even in the summer because it's so blooming cold at the moment, isn't it? It's like, that's that's the problem. It, it's funny uh, the, the weekend there was some patches of bright sun, but you would walk past restaurants and you'd you'd notice that if they were on a corner, like one side was getting all the sun and one side wasn't, and there was nobody on the cold side because it was like being on the dark side of the moon. So people were like just waiting and waiting for the the hope of sitting in some sun, and we're not that well prepared for it. You're right. There's there's, there's a there's a, a whole kind of like herd of of metal kind of outdoor heaters have been wheeled into position but what we're not so good at is giving people things like blankets for their knees and things which you would get in kind of like chillier european climbs in, in if you're in i don't know germany or, or switzerland for example and i think there's there's some ill preparedness for that but what is more fun to think about is in five six weeks when it is really hot and you can still go inside the restaurants but there's still a kind of desire to be outside and then I think it's going to be amazing. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'm in, enjoying all of this urbanism that's spontaneous, uh, fast moving. I don't know what will stick, and I don't know. I want it all to stick, but it could be a summer that you you really remember if this is the, if this is properly the tail end of this damn thing, and the city is jubilant and people haven't all gone away because it's you know they decided it was easy to stay here. It could be just a great time to be outdoors drinking, eating and being with people we haven't seen enough of. 
and uh, Tom, lastly, uh, Andrew mentioned sticking or twisting. And we've seen the hospitality industry has been very nimble um, at changing its business model, doing recipe boxes, um, selling things like a deli might. Do you think any of that's going to stick afterwards or will we go back to restaurants as we knew them before after the pandemic? I mean, it's hard to say, isn't it? I think I've kind of liked the way that it's changed and restaurants have become even more socially engaged in terms of, yeah, pivoting to be a bit of a focus point for the community, selling, uh, you know, selling groceries, and then really having a much more direct um, engagement with their clientele. There is something different about being served restaurant food in your home or going to get it. And I kind of think that it's an opportunity maybe for restaurants to yeah, broaden their reach. If you're a small place, maybe you only have a dozen or 20 covers, you know, why not also serve that food to a hundred other diners on the night by uh, reaching out to them in their, in their homes? I, I hope some elements come, but I think, as Andrew says, people will ha- have such an appetite, for want of a better phrase, to get back out there that I think they're going to have to focus all their endeavours on their on their kitchens and keeping the punters happy. It's brilliant. The only thing that's ridiculous at the moment is it's nearly May and people are still having to go out in their winter coats because if you sit on the pavement, it is so, so cold so we can never really be like a parisian pavement culture can we i'd sit on a chair not on the pavement it's it's, it's, it's much (laughs) warmer that's where i'm going wrong (laughs) well i think we've been oddly sensible today but sadly uh, that's all the time we have on today's show big thank you to andrew tuck and to tom edwards here with me in london and in studio our studio manager today was david stevens hi david and our producer was ed stocker in milan the late edition returns at the same time on monday but for now i'm josh fennett and for the foreseeable future i'm josh fennett have a good weekend Bye.